You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this evening we continue to look at the book of Genesis, so I ask you, if you have a copy of the Bible, to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we are in verses 1 through 3 today, but frankly, these verses should be a part of chapter 1. The chapter divisions we have in our Bibles are not inspired, um, but whoever decided to put chapter 2 here, frankly, made a mistake. Uh, Should have started... Uh, started at verse four of chapter two. That's where chapter two really should have begun because you'll see this is concluding the week of creation. All the six days of the works of creation are complete. But the grand, the grand finale of, of creation of man was accomplished on day six. And God blessed them and said his whole creation was very good. And so the question is, what will God do in response to his very good creation? So we turn to Genesis Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, to see this grand response from God. So hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 2. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. I believe we are in a wearying age. The news never stops and we exhaust ourselves trying to find out the latest breaking news and our favorite commentary upon it. Medical studies are available for all to read now. So researching the latest diagnosis and possible treatments and the latest medications is right at our fingertips and it has no end. Our friends and so-called friends are constantly posting updates on their life and their thoughts on the world and everything going on. And we feel like we constantly have to, to be checking to make sure we're not missing something that somebody's saying out there. We're addicted to our likes and our comments. Social causes, some of them very good, are vying for our dollars and every ounce of energy that we have left after long days. New products, whether it's fashion or cars, foods, gadgets, technology, whatever your favorite is, they're constantly being released, leaving us feel like, feeling like what we have is insufficient. Many of us feel like we're in a vortex and we cannot keep pace with what's going on around us. These three little verses provide a radical antidote to this wearying world. Just as these verses were radical in the original setting among the Mesopotamian and the Egyptian peoples, because in their creation accounts, it was typical for the creator God to rest after he finished, but only because the people he created were then now serving him, bringing him food and those things that he needed. But God's rest here is nothing of the sort. As we saw in chapter 1, verse 30, God didn't create humankind to provide food for him. He created them and provided food for his creatures. God's rest here 
is his enthronement on display for everyone to see. This is a satisfaction and a glory in who God is and what he has done. It's not as if God was tired after six days of heavy manual labor and needed a day off with physical rest. No, this day of rest is not for himself, but the seventh day of God's rest is for us. I want to provide a few comments on this before we really go into what does this mean for you and me today? But I think you'll, you'll find interesting and note quickly that uh, chapter two, verse one and, and, and chapter one, verse one provide bookends. This section we just read and, and the beginning of, of the Bible are providing bookends. This is, this is completing an entire narrative. We saw the repetition of the words, the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we come to chapter two, verse one, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. They were said to be created at the beginning, and here they're finished, along with all of the hosts of them, those those animals and the stars and and the heavenly beings. All of this has been created by God. We also see that verb, create, in the beginning, God created. And then in chapter 2, verse 3, the last word, the verb there, God rested from all the work he had done in creation. That's a verb there in all that he had created. The word create is now bookending this section. So we see clearly here, coherent unit that we are concluding, all showing us one primary thing, the glory and the majesty of God. But day seven radically departs from the structures of days one through six. Day seven does not begin in our text, and God said just the way every other day had. In fact, nothing was created on day seven. And even the word rested, verse two, says, and on the seventh day, God finishes work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day. This isn't even an, an active word. This isn't even a word of something God is actively doing. It's really better translated and understood as ceased. On the seventh day, God ceased from his labors. There's no active creating. There's no ordering of the universe that God is doing on day seven. It's all done. Maybe most starkly, at the end of day seven, there's no evening and morning. Every other day, there's evening and there's morning. The first day, the second day, the third day, and we come to the seventh day, and there's no conclusion of that sort. So we see here, instead of being a a normal day like the rest of the creation days, it provides a capstone above the others. Day seven becomes a sort of focal point. This is the end point to which all the other days are moving. They're moving toward this day of rest. And significantly, God here blesses this day. This day becomes holy time. Usually we're used to God blessing people or places or or things even. The the holy temple, things like that. We saw saw God blessed mankind on day six. But here, something different. This is time that is blessed time that is made holy, time that is consecrated and set apart. There is a holy time, the Sabbath, that God has set apart from the dawn of time. So what do these three short verses mean for us today? So what had God rested on day seven? But one overarching idea, and we'll look at 
two points. God's rest is a call for his image bearers to rest. God's rest is a call for his image bearers to rest. Well, first, see weekly rest. Weekly rest. God's image bearers are called to image God. That's what it means to bear his image. We're we're to, to copy him, to be like him, to imitate him, to follow him. And because the image, humankind was called to exercise dominion, as we saw previously. Called to be God's vicegerents on earth, to rule for God, on behalf of God, trustly and wisely over all of creation, because they're made in his image. Likewise, because we are made in his image, we are called to imitate God's pattern of work and rest. In short, we, as God's image bearers, are called to observe a weekly Sabbath. Some say the Sabbath ordinance was instituted on Mount Sinai with the giving of the Ten Commandments. But this isn't true. It was instituted here in Genesis chapter 2, which should be Genesis chapter 1. But we see this Sabbath observance predating, even in Scripture, predating the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. We go back to, to Exodus chapter 16 with Israel in the wilderness, and God is giving Israel manna, providing for them while they're in the wilderness. And God, on day six, gives them a double portion. So they can collect for two days so that God is now allowing them to keep the Sabbath as he instituted it from creation. By giving them double portion on day six, he's enabling them to observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But then, of course, when we do come to the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments, we read this. This is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant, your, ma- your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So why was Israel called to keep the Sabbath? Because this is a creational ordinance, because this is how God made the world made the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. The seventh day is holy by God's divine pronouncement and blessing. Therefore, keep it and observe it. So it's grounded in creation itself. It's grounded in the narrative that we've read. We're to keep the Sabbath because God made it holy, set it apart from all of the rest of the week. God's given this day for our good. Jesus tells us the Sabbath was made for man. It was made for us, for our good. We need this because we're human. We need to rest from our labors. We need to rest from all of our worldly endeavors. We need rest to remind us who our king is. It's not our job. It's not our pocketbook. It's not even our family. But it is God, the creator of heaven and earth. How is your Sabbath observance? Now we're at evening worship, so I'm kind of speaking to the choir here, right? But how is your Sabbath observance? Is it a day set aside not for you, but for God? Is it truly the Lord's day, not Jason's day? Is it for worship and adoration of God? Are you living congruent with God's blessing of this day? I love how Meredith Klein says this, observance of the Sabbath 
by man is thus a confession that Yahweh is Lord and Lord of Lords. Sabbath keeping expresses man's commitment to the service of the Lord. By keeping the Sabbath, we're proclaiming he is God. He has set this day apart and I'm going to recognize it for what he has done. And I'm going to entrust him that all that I need to be, that all, all that I need to do can be done in six days. And this day I cease from my labors to honor and glorify him. We image God in patterning our lives after his rest and acknowledging his lordship over our whole life. So joyfully, we get to keep the Sabbath holy. So there's weekly a weekly rest aspect here. And we'll come back to this in a few moments. But also, God's rest is a call for his image bearers to rest, not just weekly, but eternally. There is an eternal rest. There's something far bigger going on here than simply ordering our lives around one day of rest after six days of work. There's an implicit invitation for Adam and Eve to enter God's eternal rest. And a few reasons are here for this. First, the text does not indicate that there is an end to God's rest here. There's no evening and morning. There's, there's a transcendence beyond a simple calendar week here. There's something more than just a pattern of work and rest. God has rested and he is still resting. And so this introduces us to a frame that indicates the purpose of all of creation. God's rest is what we were created for. God's enthronement, his universal recognition is the alpha and the omega. The one who created all things and the one who will bring all things to its conclusion. Your hardest boss says, man is reminded in this way by the Sabbath that life is not an aimless existence, that a goal lies beyond it. And the goal is this eternal Sabbath rest that God is enjoying, that we can enjoy with him. As image bearers, we can participate in the divine eternal rest. That rest is without evening and morning. The rest is in God's perfection, in perfect joy and happiness and contentment and satisfaction. This rest is what all of creation was designed to be heading towards and to find its completion and fulfillment in. This rest is what we, image bearers of God, were created for. This is what Ecclesiastes 3.11 means. When it says, he has put eternity into man's heart. Eternity, the eternity of this joyous rest in God's presence. If Adam and Eve had fulfilled their vocation, the vocation we spoke of previously, which we'll see again in chapter two, that vocation of filling the earth and subduing it and having dominion over the earth. If Adam and Eve had fulfilled that vocation, the Sabbath rest, this eternal Sabbath rest awaited them. Their work would result in eternal rest, confirmation and rest that they could not lose. But of course, Adam and Eve failed to make it there. After the fall, which we'll see in a few moments, this offer of rest has been reissued. And, and Psalm 95 speaks of this explicitly. It says that the disobedient Israel went astray in their hearts and they were disobedient. So God said to them, this is Psalm 95 verses 10 and 11, God said to them, they shall not enter my rest. 
those disobedient, those who reject God will not enter God's rest. What is he speaking of? He's speaking of this rest of Genesis 2. His eternal rest. Those who reject him will not enter his rest. So implicitly, the opposite is true, saying there is a rest that God, that my people can enter into. And this is exactly what Hebrews 4 says that we read of earlier. All of this is reiterated there. Where Hebrews 4 verse 1 says this, the promise of entering his rest still stands. The promise, the the offer of entering his rest still stands in verse three, which we didn't read. It says, for we who have believed enter that rest. This eternal rest of God is for you to participate in it. How do you participate in it? You participate by believing in Jesus Christ. And so we have confirmation from Hebrews that the rest of Genesis two is none other than God's establishment of everlasting blessing at his side that humanity was designed to enjoy. I think it's noteworthy that the Sabbath rest was placed at the end of the week because like God, Adam was to work before resting. It was to remind him that there was a job to do. He had a a vocation to fulfill. He had a task to complete and then it would end in rest. The dominion mandate, as we spoke of, he had work to fulfill the earth, to fill the earth and to subdue it. And there would be a time, as we'll see again as we continue through Genesis 2, there's a time where he would be confirmed in that rest. He, he would have achieved the task. He'd be given the fruit of the tree of life and you've been ushered into that confirmed a state of eternal rest. A rest without evening or morning. But of course, Adam and Eve failed as they took that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they believed the lie, did God really say? They refused the rest that God offered. They refused to fulfill their task as image bearers. And there was a failure, a catastrophic, dramatic failure to enter that rest. But yet, as Hebrews tells us, the promise to enter that rest still stands. And the rest is not now earned by completing a task that's given to us. We don't get that rest simply by obeying perfectly. We can't do that. The rest is granted by grace alone. And this is what Jesus said so beautifully. It was read this morning earlier. And Jesus says so beautifully in Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Jesus has come. The promise of rest still stands because what Christ has done, he has achieved and earned that rest. The first Adam failed, but now the last Adam has come and has brought us the opportunity to come to the eternal rest of our Father. Because in Christ, you will find rest for your souls. It is in the person of Jesus Christ, in his work that he has accomplished, that we have now a new inaugurated era of rest. Rest has begun. We no longer work to rest as it was at creation, but we now rest 
to work. There's a new age that has dawned upon us. The age of Christ's work has been completed where we experience rest now in our souls as a foretaste of the rest to come. And these great biblical theological truths have implications. So we circle back to think of the weekly rest. Because of Christ, the weekly Sabbath has been moved to the first day of the week. It's no longer the seventh day of the week. Again, that paradigm, it was work to rest. And Israel waiting for the coming of Christ was reminded week by week, year by year, that their works were insufficient. They needed the Messiah to come, but the Messiah has come. He has accomplished it. He has done it. He's done everything we need for our salvation. And so because that has happened, the, the age of rest has dawned. And so now the first day of the week, we begin our week with rest. The Sabbath the Sunday for us, the first day of the week, because we now begin our existence in the work of Christ. We begin our week resting in what he has done. We walk out into the world rejuvenated by the cross of Jesus Christ, that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that everything we need for life and godliness has been given to us. We are not working an iota to achieve the rest, but the rest is completely and fully granted to us by Jesus Christ. The early church, Gerhardus Voss makes this fascinating comment. I wish I had written down. I'll try to pull it from my brain. We'll see how this goes. He makes this fascinating comment. It says, when we're reading through the, the, the first century in the New Testament, we're reading through, through the, the early church, we don't comprehend the radical nature that they understood, the radical time period they were living through, where the eras were now being swapped. They were no longer living in the days waiting for Christ. They realized something radical had happened. The Christ had come. And so they began worshiping on that first day of the week. They knew something massive had changed. And I absolutely butchered how he said it. So I'll try to get that to you another time. But it has, they, the, the Christians in the first century knew something massive had happened. And so that's why worship has now changed from the seventh day to the first day, which we continue to do. We know we are a redeemed, forgiven, blessed people of God. And so the Sabbath, all of this shows really the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath is a foretaste of the eternal Sabbath. The weekly Sabbath is not about a day of physical rest. That's not what it's about. It's not about the day to go sit on your couch and watch football. It's not the day to take a long nap because I need to catch up from the sleep I missed throughout the week. Naps aren't bad, and I'm not saying these things are all inherently bad, but the day is about spiritual rest. It's not when we hear a day of rest. This is not a day of physical rejuvenation. It's a day of spiritual rest. It's a foretaste of heaven and God's presence. That's why the greatest priority on the Lord's day is corporate worship with God's people, where we have a foretaste of that eternal rest that we will enter into. Weekly, we are brought into an experience of these eternal promises and the eternal realities. So how do we live our lives now anticipating heaven? How do we live our lives awaiting rest? The world, if you turn to it to learn how to live, will work you to death and spit you out 
with nothing to show for it. The world's priorities will kill you. The world's values will destroy. How do we live our lives to anticipate this great eternal rest? We participate and partake deeply of the Lord's day rest now. We begin by recognizing this day is set apart by God as holy to him. Whether you recognize it or not, whether we, we, we walk consistent with this or not, today is set apart by God for his purposes to remind you of his goodness and his grace. This day is not like any other day of the week. This day has his blessing upon it and celebrating the day in doing so, we will be tremendously blessed because the eternal rest is breaking into this age through the Lord's day particularly through worship together, the word, the sacraments, we're getting these foretastes of heavenly rest. So we leave this place. We leave the first day. We embark upon our week with our minds renewed, with our hopes restored. We can set our minds on things above. We can realize this world will wear us down if it defines us and our eyes are fixed firmly upon the Lord Jesus Christ the savior of sinners. Uh, Six days of the week, the world's not gonna tell you to remember Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Be joyful, be thankful, be filled with his peace. The world will not tell you any of that. We need this day to be reminded of all these things. We can remember what God says of us, that we are a blessed, holy, sanctified people. To who gives this rest? Well, you don't earn it. It's given. Christ gives it. Christ bestows it upon his people. And so we can enjoy this rest as we rest in him, in his finished work. But we can know in this world that the greatest rest is coming. The promise to enter it still stands. And so brothers and sisters, we can believe in Christ. We look to him and we know that promise of eternal rest. The rest of Genesis 2, that God rested from all of his labors to be enthroned and to enjoy the satisfaction of all that he is. That rest is yours. Let us look to him in prayer. Thank you, oh Father. You have given us rest. Rest from all the world tells us to do, rest from our own acts of self-righteousness. And we have Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that as we look to him and feed upon him, you would strengthen your people. Strengthen us to know who we are and whose we are. To know that we have a future and a hope. To know that our sovereign God and King in control and sovereign over all. So fill us with the joy that results from these truths. May we cling tightly to Christ and now be enabled this week, filled with the strength and the joy of Christ, be willing and able to love our neighbor as ourselves, to bear witness to the great hope that we have, to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.
Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.